This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Major General Kevin Kennedy, the Assistant Deputy Chief Information Officer for Digital Transformation at the Air Force. Major General Kennedy, welcome to the discussion. Good morning, uh, Jason. Thank you for having me. We're talking today about a big project uh, that is is the Air Force, uh, ahead of obviously most agencies in called Enterprise IT as a Service. Uh, This is something that we're seeing a lot of, if you will, focus and excitement around how to change the way, not just the DOD, but really I think agencies at large uh, are looking at the way they manage their IT resources, their hardware, their software, even even to some extent their people. So let me start with what is your role with uh, Enterprise IT as a service and, and what are your kind of focus areas? My role is as the director of uh, digital transformation and the assistant deputy chief information officer is um, I uh, provide the headquarters Air Force level oversight of the activity and, and ensure that the coordination um, across the Air Force happens to roll out enterprise um, information technology as a service or EIT as a service. And in that role, I, I, I handle the uh, the costing, the forecasting for our budgeting, and also the strategy and the vision of where we want to take um, the, the initiative. We're closely partnered with Air Combat Command uh, just down the street at, at Langley Air Force Base and also um, with our acquisition professionals up at uh, Hanscom Air Force Base um, are the key other uh, teammates that we have in rolling this out. And, and so what I do in there is I look across the portfolios and to make sure of how we're going to essentially provide information technology um, to our airmen in the Space Force and in the Air Force uh, to make sure that we're ready to accomplish the mission. I'm also dual-hatted on the headquarters Air Force staff um, over in the A26. I'm also the um, assistant deputy chief of staff for cyber effects operations. In that role, I'm thinking more about how we're going to leverage the network that we're fielding, leverage the information technology and the capabilities and applications it supports um, in the in warfighter communications and in cyber effects operations. So when the Air Force's perspective on offensive cyber operations and defensive cyber operations, I also uh, bring that perspective to my job. When you deal with the forecasting of budget, of strategy, of vision, enterprise IT as a service is very interesting because this is not one of those things where you guys are saying, okay, let's just move to email in the cloud or let's let's pick up these applications and put them over here. It's actually an experiment in many ways, a proof of concept. Can you talk about how the strategy, the vision, the budgeting kind of deals with the fact that this in many ways is an experiment? We are in a risk reduction phase right now. And what we're looking at doing there is understanding how do we procure information technology um, with the capabilities, modern 25th century tools, in a way that leverages industry's speed of delivery and innovation, leverages the innovation we have inside the service, and also takes best advantage of the uh, military and civilian um, airmen that we have working um, in the field. And, and so about five to 10 years ago, in that time frame, as information technology became more than just email, and as, as the service became came to recognition that this the way we collaborate and share information is going to become even more critical to our operation. It was always a key element in war fighting, but as we go forward, we see that the availability of information and the ability to communicate um, at speeds and with more resiliency is going to become even more of a dimension of future warfare. So as the, as the CIO, we looked toward and said, how do we provide that for the force? And we figured that we, what we needed now had been um, largely under-resourced 
and we had accepted risk there as we had gone through various budgeting cycles um, to make sure that we had the lethality and the fielding of the systems that we needed to fight and win our nation's wars. Now, as we're going forward, we see those wars changing slightly. We still have a need for a highly to have a high-end force with some significant kinetic capabilities, but we also have to think through how those non-kinetic capabilities integrate, and a lot of them that do leverage our information technology and our networks, and also how do we enable command and control and joint air all domain command and control in a way that would enable that speed of decision that the future of warfare is going to, to require. When we look at that from that perspective, we decided that the way we were providing it right now wasn't necessarily keeping up with the pace that industry could provide it. And we didn't want to necessarily have industry just come in and do a, a traditional acquisition of we set very definitive requirements for so many users at so much time with so much capabilities, and then procure, set out a contract that then puts folks in seats to do that type of activity. What we wanted is to consume it as a service. So as the industry model changes, we can also pivot. And, and as we can consume it at the number and tailor it to the wing that we're supporting. And so that was that's truly what we're looking at um, as we're moving forward. And so when we're thinking through that, there's a few things that we needed as we're in this experiment that we're focusing on. Um, and really the first one that I'd like to emphasize is um, we're, we're looking at the maturity level of what that capability is that we're fielding. So as we're, as we're fielding a capability and uh, across the portfolio, we wanna make sure that the solution that industry can provide is mature enough to meet the rigors and, and resilience that we need for our force. The other part, this is a very big shift in the way you approach security on our network. And, and really we're looking at how we enable a pivot from boundary defense more towards data-centric defense and more towards a zero trust approach. And so that's a heavy engagement with our industry partners and with 16th Air Force and US Cyber Command um, and just to understand how do we do that and move forward. The other part of it is information technology is absolutely vital to our airmen getting their mission done. It's a, it's a time consideration, but it's also how do they get access to the information so they can turn aircraft, fly satellites, make sure our airmen are well-trained and prepared to, uh, to fight and win. And so we need to think through how the actual information technology is performing. So that's one of the other key things that we're looking at measuring is how do we get, gauge the performance of our information technology. And the other last one, as in most things, we have to make sure we're getting return on investment for the taxpayer and that the solution is affordable. The way that we model and cost this has to be um, laser focused on getting the most value um, that we can out of the dollars that we spend and understanding how we can move those that spend, whether it's at wing level or at corporate uh, Air Force level, or whether what the capability we provide is tailored um, for the airmen for what they need. They have the capabilities they need, but we don't necessarily uh, procure one size fits all across the force. I want to go back to one thing you just said about affordability and cost model. This concept of as a service is not necessarily new the concept, the, the broad concept. We've seen it over the years as alternative service providers. We've seen it over the years as seat management. We've seen it over the years as the, you know, the COCO model, right? Contractor-owned, contractor-operated, or the government-owned, contractor-operated model, NMCI. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Is that the piece here of, of why enterprise IT as a service is also different? Because a lot of those previous attempts maybe weren't affordable or they weren't as the right, the model just maybe didn't jive well with what the needs of the agency was. But now with the technology changing and the cloud, that's why this model potentially has a more likelihood of succeeding. There's a lot of truth in that question is, you know, where the technology has come and, and where what the cloud enables us to do, um, I think does enable less of a 
capital investment potentially into information technology services, you know, numbers of data centers and things like that, we can think differently about it. But I want to emphasize too, we're not looking, this isn't necessarily a cost savings. I mean, there's a, there's two challenges that the Air Force asked us to look at. One of them was a, a capability improvement that the information technology speed and resilience of it needed to improve. And the other part was they wanted the most modern is a modernization aspect, the most modern kind of capabilities that were out there. And so where we are on the on the model is understanding what do we need to have built in acquisition roles that incentivizes the right behavior. So I think a lot of our risk reduction effort is also looking at how do we write contracts in a way that don't disincentivize the outcomes that we're looking for. And then sometimes that uh, our industry partners, you know, are, are are executing the contract vehicle we put forward to them, and we want to make sure that we had, those are structured in a way that doesn't necessarily have and, uh, undetermined second and third order of effects. The other part of it is we need to make sure that um, we want to not have a vendor lock situation as we're going in. We want to make sure that our data is mobile, um, it's portable. If we need to go a different way, we can. And, and we see in the as-a-service model, and, and as we consume it, um, that gives us a lot of flexibility uh, as we're going forward there. So I think those are the, the two reasons why, you know, now is a little different in time, um, but I think your insight about the cloud maturity and our ability to leverage that, I think that does give us some opportunities that we didn't have before because of the capital investment. It's actually a great segue. Some of the benefits, some of the metrics of success that you're seeing, it seems to be the vendor lock-in, the data mobility, the as-a-service model. Those are both the benefits, but also some of the metrics you're paying close attention to. Are there others that you want to highlight? There's the, the kind of mission readiness metrics that we look at, which is one of the, at the core is how do our airmen perceive their information technology and is it supporting their mission? So we, we see this as a readiness issue, and that's one of the things that we're capturing with a, a pretty robust, from my experience in the Air Force, regime of, of surveying our airmen as they're out there consuming across the um, Air Force networks and as well as at the uh, risk reduction um, basis. So that's one of the other things that we're um, that we're specifically capturing in this um, exercise. And then, no, not necessarily a metric. One of the things also during risk reduction is the lessons learned on the execution side of the house um, with respect to the acquisition vehicles that we are going to roll out as we look to go to production in 22 and 23, as we look to change from our risk reduction effort to, to whatever our production vehicle and how that, that enterprise is going to look. And then also um, we need to look through of how the security ConOps development is another metric, the maturity model of that, of how we do incident response, um, where the lines between industry and app cyber are to make sure that we have uh, the ability to continue to maneuver and when necessary, uh, take action on our networks if adversaries are inside and, and trying to access our data or prevent operation of our network. When you talk about capturing the, the surveying your, the airmen and uh, understand both across the networks and at risk reduction basis, can you talk a little bit more about how that survey works and maybe even just at a high level, some of the things you're learning from those airmen? It's the first time I've seen this rolled out in my career I'm in the past 30 years, but it's, I think it's a survey that most of your listeners uh, would be familiar with. It's, uh, it, as you're on working on the network, it's a series of questions that ask you your know, satisfaction level with the network and if, uh, you know, kind of a, a question tree that leads you down um, a path if there is. And then the places where we really like to mine and to, to kind of get a sense is the, um, the free response. And so when we look through this free response, we're looking for, you know, how many times things are mentioned and how many times the, um, you know, in a positive or negative manner. Most of the time, the folks that take, the, you know, there are folks that like to, uh, our airmen like to come out and highlight a lot of the positive things in their comments, but there also is a, that's where we find the, 
the real pain points usually come out in those comments to understand um, where we are in our network. And what we were finding is the way in the past decades, the way we've constructed the AFNET has been successful in, in many ways, but it also has created a, a non-efficient transactional path in some ways, um, just as different capabilities and, and as we cobbled together um, different parts of the network to form the AFNET. It's uh, always continually improving in our cyber capability center in the lead with Air Combat Command and others um, helping us get there. Um, but that's one of the things that we determined from the network, um, from those responses and enabled us to really look at, at some of the pain points, slow access to email, slow access to information in our Office 365 environment. And then recently, we've gone through and simplified that transactional path within the Air Force. For some of our airmen, it was 48 potential steps to get in and back from there with their information. We were able to, to bring that down to 20 to 25, depending on how you're accessing the network and, and what information you were trying to, to use. So that was one of the things that the survey helped us identify. The other part of that in that is we continue to look through that transactional space and, and focus on our airmen and their ability to leverage the network on and influence their readiness was the end user devices that they were using and, and truly understanding if the if our tech refresh rates were we're keeping up with the capabilities that we are also looking to explore and the kind of tools that we're using in the cloud. And so that was one of the other things that we, we highlighted that as we do our follow-on tech refreshes to, to, to look at what are the baseline capabilities that we want um, in our tablets or our laptops or our desktops. And so that was another one of the positive outcomes. Let's take a quick break. My guest today is Major General Kevin Kennedy, the Air Force Assistant Deputy CIO for Digital Transformation. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Major General Kevin Kennedy, the Air Force's Assistant Deputy CIO for Digital Transformation. As you guys have rolled out Enterprise IT as a service, there's obviously a lot of things that are happening at once. I think you guys have three or four different proofs of concepts, three at the risk reduction basis, and then you're working with some other agencies, whether it's uh, on the user desktop management side or even with Google looking at potential move to zero trust. Give me a sense of, of what are some of those broad challenges you faced and, and how has the coronavirus pandemic, if at all, added to those challenges or impacted the program? Some of the broad challenges of moving towards an ITAS environment is just the uh, the cultural change is the first one. The technology, I think industry and the Air Force, we understand where we need to take the enterprise to enable us to consume network as a service, for example, with our two primary partners there being um, AT&T and Microsoft. And so um, we understood that I think the technological solution was understood, though, though not simple. It says you enable Air Force information to leave an Air Force base area network into into an AT&T or Microsoft network, and we're still in the, you know, still in the early stages of doing that up to full capacity. Although just on May 29th, we we're able to approve both uh, Offutt Air Force Base and Buckley Air Force Base to go from a 10% uh, capacity on their network as a service up to up toward 100% capacity. That throttle being guided by uh, 16th Air Force down at AppCyber. So that was one of the things as we we're looking through that is like, what's the cultural transformation that we had to think through. The other part is, as you would expect, is there is a stakeholder engagement piece that we needed to really focus on between industry, the base level, um, airmen that are working toward this new way of information technology, as well as at, at the headquarters level and the MAGCOM level to make sure that all of the stakeholders across the environment understand what we're trying to do. The key here to go back to the costing is we are looking to provide services at an enterprise level and cost and resource them there 
where previously may have been the requirement of the MAGCOMs, the major commands in the United States Air Force to do that. With that will come some expectation that the resourcing will also move to headquarters. And with that comes the responsibility for the headquarters to, to make sure the major commands understand what we're doing with those resources and are fully involved in those decision-making. So it's a, that the governance model that we're employing is an incredibly um, significant part. As far as over the last couple of months now um, with the coronavirus response, what we found is our industry partners were able to continue uh, moving along on many, if not all, of the lines of effort as we're, we're going forward. The, obviously, some of the mobility requirements across the nation as far as folks physically moving um, was limited. Um, so some of the activities uh, may have taken a, a little longer timeline, but we think we can make that up in schedule as we move forward. But it's something that we're monitoring. Um, but the folks that were already rolled out capabilities, for example, at Buckley Air Force Base, the networking, the base area networking support that uh, AT&T was providing there was able to come into this new environment and help the base think through how they provide virtual private network access in different places that weren't on the base before and roll that out. Also, how to provide um, extended uh, Cipronetta classified networking into uh, other spaces to help with the uh, dispersing around the base. And so we decrease density or make it possible to work from a remote station um, across the base as we're going there. And additionally, um, SAIC, who's leading uh, one of our efforts as far as our, our service desk responses for IT uh, SM functions, stayed up and running fully through that and helped us quite a bit um, with the Buckley Air Force Base on their, their virtual private network responses. Um, so what we saw during the, uh, the pandemic industry um, was able to continue to provide the services much like in, we saw industry providing an incredible amount of telecom support to the nation. The, our partners in ITAS were able to do the same um, for our bases. You mentioned the Offit and Buckley Air Force Base is basically going from 10% to about 100% or close to a, a capacity for network as a service. What does that mean? Break that down maybe to the next level about is it just better, faster capabilities, more capabilities? Help me understand. What we're trying to see there is how we can leverage a different transactional path with different security devices that will enable us to leverage their network, their network security to see if that does help with the the user, our airmen, as they're leveraging information technology, if they see that access. And where we think we will see that first is the Air Force is a pretty close to wholly in an Office 365 based cloud-based environment for our collaboration tools. And we're, that's where we're really focusing on is as we, as our airmen use those tools to perform their missions and uh, basic collaboration with email teams and the like, we are looking to see if we're leveraging their networks, their cloud access point, different internet access point versus the ones on the, the Dodum uh, transactional path to see if there's a difference and, and also make sure that we're comfortable with the security on that path um, as we're transitioning along. So that's what we expect. Uh, that's how we expect that to, to see that difference in, um, in speed of function, um, as well as increased collaboration capabilities. Okay, that, that's helpful to understand. Because uh, when I hear, obviously, network as a service, oh, they're all on, but you're looking for maybe almost a slice of it in, in some ways, and it's a security focused. Walk me through, if we have this conversation in a year from now and five years from now, the future network of the Air Force, what will it look like? What will it mean? In a year from now, our expectation is to be in a place that we have the planning and the waterfall as we're going to um, have the strategies in place to roll um, ITAS across the force. It won't be in the entire air and space force. Not every member of both services will have that, but we're looking to have our planning and our acquisition strategy well aligned, our manning strategy 
well aligned and our cost strategy well aligned. And so from a year from now, that sounds like a heavy lift and it is, um, but that's where we're looking to be in a year as we're going. Five years from now, we look to have what we're going to have for capability as in an as a service model um, fully up and running. Um, we are still in risk reduction. And so we have to understand as we look at our lines of efforts with this compute and store, network as a service and user services as a service of what capabilities that we do continue as a service model and what we find um, that for whatever reasons, whether it be the acquisition, the cost model or the capability wasn't able to close on that, then we'll, we'll be able to roll that out to the force. But it, I don't wanna leave your listeners with the impression that it's going to be all lines of effort all fully as a service. We're still very much have an open mind about how we're going to be able to provide the capabilities. But the bottom line is that our our major commands and their their leadership, the, the uh, lieutenant generals and generals that lead those commands have challenged the CIO and, and the air staff to, to provide um, a capability that enables mission readiness for the future of the 21st century's fight. And what we find there is that we're gonna have to field and resource 21st century capabilities um, to do that. And that is what the CI is focused on in five years from now. Um, that capability, those capabilities should be across this Air Force and the Space Force. There's a similar effort going on at the Army. We know that the Navy has, got, has been down paths with NMCI, now NGEN. I'm sure there's the Fourth Estate that's working on very similar consolidation efforts. Walk me through how you all are working with those other services and, and sharing those lessons you've learned and, and pulling in their lessons learned. How's that communication happening? Absolutely partnering, looking across the department for lessons learned. And as we constructed our as-a-service uh, approach to this, we, you know, one of our first conversations was with the, uh, with the Navy to understand what they felt that was well-executed and what they felt they would change if they had to um, go back and do it again. And as, as you mentioned, we have a new model that was, wasn't necessarily allowed when, when the Navy started this. Um, also, one of the key points was looking at how they rolled out their change management, how they rolled out across their workforce, um, all of those lessons um, from the Navy, uh, we took them on board and are making sure that we're paying attention to them as we move forward. With the Army, the Army has partnered extremely closely with us um, and has their own partnered initiative, slightly different approach, but they are um, working with us. And to the point of that the Army has embedded um, liaison officers with our office, uh, with our integrated program office up at uh, Hanscom, and to make sure that we stay well aligned as we're going forward. And to enable the collaboration and coordination across the department, um, we have provide occasional updates to DOD CIO. Um, we also have a um, couple, you know, every other month or so, we get together with um, with DISA just to make sure and the uh, and the, the Army and the Air Force to make sure that we are understanding where we are and and to see if there's any friction points that we need to work through as far as uh, coordinating some of the technological solutions or some of the policies across between uh, Air Force, DOD, CIO, and DISA to make sure that we're moving out. One of the things the Air Force that we signed up with with DOD, CIO is as we look at our security requirements, it would the commercial solution needs to be equivalent or better. And that's one of the things that we're holding very fast to as we go forward. And the, and the other mechanism that we do to, to ensure that is internal to the Air Force is we have operational readiness reviews as we roll out key capabilities. And one of the very significant discussions that we have during those reviews is the security posture as we're moving forward. Um, but that is, uh, that's how we're looking to stay synced across the department um, and transparent. And, and like you mentioned, our key partners there, DISA, uh, DOD CIO, U.S. Cyber Command, and the U.S. Army. When you work with the Army or when you work with the other agencies, are they, if you will, on the floor with you? It's not a watch floor like we have with cybersecurity, but are, are they 
or, or is it through these meetings that you tend to kind of catch up each other on w w progress and challenges and, and p potholes to avoid? The primary mechanism is the Army is in, inside of our integrated program office, and we're also working with DISA to have a, a field office at DISA for, I, uh, for inter Enterprise IT as a service um, up at Fort Meade and, and whether um, have a dedicated person that's identified there that's going to be an Air Force representative um, through that. So that's one of the things that we came out with from our last integration meeting with DISA, and, and we uh, rogered up that we wanted to um, um, provide um, that connectivity. Still working through the details, but that is the intent. But the the Army already has uh, someone embedded up with us at Hanscom, and we also have the ability to embed DISA as we move forward if that becomes a demand signal as well. One last thing comes to mind as you bring up this idea of enterprise IT as a service. How is it going to change the role of the airmen, the people who support, that do IT support today? The big aspect of this is also what do our airmen do within the field of information technology service delivery. And going forward, our military and civilian airmen will still have a role, although our vision for this is it would be a decreased role as we require the, our airmen to be more adversary focused in the space, and we need to figure out how we can move them more into defensive cyber operations and mission assurance and for the primary vehicle of that being our mission defense teams that we're looking to roll out across the Air Force to ensure that we can generate air and space power um, across the Department of the Air Force. And so that is one of the aspects of that that we're, we're looking forward is how do we take our, our workforce along with us. We will, we will still have airmen that will be involved with information technology, but the numbers will decrease and then also the focus will become more adversary focused and in integration of our warfighting capabilities um, rather than on, on pure service delivery. Um, but that's uh, something I think is a growth area and, and every, the airmen across the enterprise are very excited about it. Uh, Major General Kevin Kennedy is the Assistant Deputy Chief Information Officer for Digital Transformation at the Air Force. Uh, Major General Kennedy, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Mr. Miller, thanks for having me. We have to take a break. When we return, we shift gears to hear from the Army about their cloud and IT modernization efforts. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this part of the show, my colleague Jory Heckman talked with Paul Puckett, the director of the Army Enterprise Cloud Management Office. Jory starts off by asking Puckett about how the Army has adjusted its IT modernization plans and priorities during the coronavirus pandemic. Our ability to, in real time, adapt, uh, get on the phone, be able to chat with one another, leveraging capabilities like Microsoft Teams. I mean, you just saw the dynamic response from the DOD of there is a mission critical need for our ability to communicate and collaborate uh, to solve these problems together. And in a matter of weeks, we had over 4 million accounts that were created in a brand new environment, uh, accredited and monitored by security, uh, and people solving problems globally. And so I think Teams and, and CVR, the commercial virtual remote environment that DOD CIO stood up with the support from Cloud Computing Program Office and a number of entities to include Army's uh, C5 ISR for security, obviously DISA, and the collaboration with Cybercom, is when we need to address a problem, we've got the ability to come together, collaborate, communicate, and solve that problem in real time and um, there's no requirements document that had uh, an acquisition strategy for compute and storage to accommodate 4 million users globally. It all came down to the, the dynamic ability of a cloud environment to adapt. And so that's, I think, CVR in COVID-19 is just a beautiful example of, of how our IT modernization efforts can benefit from this unpredictable world 
and the ability to have online, on-demand compute and storage resources uh, at the push of a button. And so from an IT modernization perspective, what we saw is a number of components across the Army were already leaning into this methodology uh, for how we leverage cloud computing, um, how we move to more of a, a dynamic uh, you know, environment rather than some type of fixed security architecture uh, where we've got to be able to fight from anywhere. Um, and so uh, a lot of initiatives, uh, for instance, Vantage, uh, Vantage, a cloud-based capability uh, leveraging real-time information from our business mission systems. Uh, Vantage was a critical capability for the Corps of Engineers uh, as well as the National Guard to be able to address the logistics challenges of getting PPE uh, and people um, and even hospitals uh, provided in various environments uh, across the United States uh, for us to be able to respond. Uh, that meant new data had to be uh, available in Vantage. Uh, that meant that compute for processing that information and storage for all of that information had to be ready on demand. And we didn't find ourselves with the limitation of a procurement process uh, or even a requirements document for contractors being able to accommodate and adapt. Uh, we had designed our contracts and our systems uh, leveraging a cloud environment to adapt in real time to an unpredictable world. And so we saw examples of, of that across the Army, but we also saw the opposite, where uh, typical workflows uh, required somebody to be on a physical camp post or station, uh, required government furnished equipment, required uh, to be in some fixed location in order to get the job done. Um, and so in those instances, you know, we accommodated, uh, but it really kind of begged the question of what workloads uh, have we been taking these secure and kind of fixed environments uh, for granted with, uh, especially when we introduced this notion of a global pandemic that requires us to work remotely from anywhere. And so the current investments with IT modernization, we saw those initiatives continue to thrive. And then the ones where, you know, we hadn't made those investments or kind of asked those hard questions or invested those resources, we struggled to accommodate in real time to kind of the new way of working. Just maybe drilling a little bit deeper on that that point there, how did cloud services become more essential during the pandemic in this drive to still deliver on mission outcomes? And you know, to what extent did the organization, did the Army, make greater use of cloud services to maintain mission outcomes? When it came to you know cloud services, obviously the ability to have online, on-demand compute and storage resources were absolutely critical for any new capability that we had to spin up in response to COVID-19. For example, uh, one of the most important things was starting to track people uh, in symptoms uh, and who was where and if they were safe, if they were being quarantined or not. And so we had the ability to build dynamic uh, websites to start to be able to capture that information. But there's some really critical information uh, that we're collecting from our employees, and so you need to ensure that your environment is accredited to be able to handle that information. Uh, and so we had already invested in modernizing, leveraging cloud computing, how we manage people information, and it's leveraging the same foundational environment that we're leaning into for the Army's enterprise cloud common services that we call uh, C-Army, that's little C, big Army. And so our ability to deploy a capability, be able to capture that information, to be able to store and process that information securely, had to lean upon existing investments in the cloud, but then also that dynamic ability to respond and adapt uh, to COVID-19 and new requirements 
uh, those foundations already existed that we could simply build upon in real time uh, rather than finding ourselves in the acquisition lifecycle to try and accommodate that unpredictable need. And so when we talk about Vantage and our ability to leverage or increase the existing use of cloud services is uh, where we had already made those investments, ingesting new data and delivering new services was critical. And also to include our, our ongoing efforts for moving to the cloud, one of the initiatives that we had begun before COVID-19 hit was optimizing our ERPs and moving them into a cloud-based environment. Uh, and so what we saw is uh, our investment in those environments and uh, the ability to access in a secure way remotely uh, those cloud resources to do that work were critical uh, and were not fixed to our on-premise architectures. And so we just saw going live with that initiative with our ERPs moving to the cloud. And so uh, be able to hold to those timelines and even actually accelerate those timelines to the left uh, were critical from being able to leverage the investments that we had already made and then be able to uh, build upon those investments and those modernization initiatives even during a, a global pandemic. What were some of the biggest lessons learned from the Army during the pandemic when it comes to technology acquisition? You know, what about lessons learned as part of the technology implementation as well? So I think the two complement each other. When it comes to acquisitions and implementation, like I said, no one could have predicted COVID-19. And so when it comes to how we write requirements in contracts, uh, I think it demonstrated that those contracts that left room for achieving an objective and not the explicit steps uh, that needed to be taken in order to achieve that objective were really the ones that were the most uh, resilient to responding to COVID-19 from an acquisitions perspective. And so uh, I think far too often that we uh, work a problem or a requirement uh, so far where we uh, happen to fix in stone uh, the precise way, uh, the precise technology, or even the precise you know, processes by which that capability has to be brought to bear. And what we find is that when any of the uh, environmental constraints uh, happen to change or any components of the landscape uh, happen to shift, is that those contracts aren't able to adapt in real time. And so where I think it, it helps the Army realize is that we need to start to write our requirements really as hypotheses that need to be tested, uh, and then to be able to have this kind of this ability to learn from those tests and be able to pivot in how we respond in delivering a capability. And so uh, whether that means some fixed component of an architecture on the te technical implementation side of the house is that we don't uh, find ourselves having to predict the future in order to be able to deliver within the timelines, within the budget, and with the actual precision that we're delivering quality capabilities that our soldiers need and want. And so the, the acquisition side, in my opinion, I think really complements what we see in technological implementation as well. But it also gets to how we fight. Uh, I think one of the lessons learned from uh, current technical implementation is uh, there are a number of web-based services that we have across the Army where our only ability to access that capability is from the Doden. And a lot of that challenge has to do with uh, the whitelisting process uh, and what should be whitelisted uh, for um, public Internet access. But the other part of that is when we whitelist a website, even if we require authentication and access, you know, what... Uh, controlled unclassified information are we enabling people to 
uh, perhaps download onto unmanaged devices. And so there's this kind of this managed risk challenge that has to be understood where uh, our ability to access web-based services from anywhere is critical, uh, but also our thoughtfulness when it comes to uh, what data uh, we're exposing uh, in what environments in context of the mission that's trying to be solved. And so a lot of times we saw where we had to travel on base in order to access critical websites in order to, to do our jobs, and it begged the question of, uh, should these actually be accessible from the World Wide Web but still require the appropriate authentication uh, in order to use them? And then if those changes needed to happen, has my contract been written in a way to accommodate those changes in real time, or am I now being forced into a new acquisition to get that work done? So from a cloud-based perspective, I think from an acquisition and technology uh, approaches that um, really software is never done. There's always going to be a, a changing uh, environment and landscape, and so our ability to adapt in real time in both the contract as well as the technical implementation uh, is absolutely critical. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing excerpts of a conversation between Paul Puckett, the director of the Army Enterprise Cloud Management Office, and Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a discussion from my colleague, Jory Heckman, as he talks to Paul Puckett, the director of the Army Enterprise Cloud Management Office. How will you ensure that the lessons learned become the norm and are not the exception when it comes to implementing or updating new or current systems and software? What COVID-19 has taught us is there's there's kind of this, there's nothing that could be like normal or not normal, in my opinion, like this, this notion of like, this is an emergency and this other thing is not an emergency, I think is, is really tough nowadays, uh, especially with COVID-19. I mean, just, so I'll give an example, you know, our ability to access, you know, a time card and be able to sign it as web-enabled capability, we, we treat that as kind of this normal thing. But, you know, if we had to come into base in order to sign a time card, uh, simply because it was not web-enabled and accessible from, you know, the World Wide Web, uh, even though it requires, you know, CAC authentication, that would be a major limitation to the way that we just simply function. So I think it's it's part of these these new paradigms, if you will, for how we need to be uh, building capabilities. And so uh, part of the, the kind of new normal, uh, if you will, is when it comes to implementing new capabilities, we're looking for resilient and adaptive contracts. Uh, and this is part of uh, contract language that we're capturing in a cloud smart methodology to leverage uh, cloud-based technologies and so that we've got kind of that adaptive nature from a compute and storage perspective. Our ability to leverage uh, the common services within those cloud environments so we start to standardize on how we uh, field and secure IT systems, uh, how we authenticate users to those capabilities. And then we're also seeing uh, a movement in the way that we write uh, contracts uh, for the work to be more agile. So we're seeing a lot of capacity-based contracts. Uh, we're seeing a lot of contracts where objectives are being stated, but explicit details of the requirements uh, are not, so that we can give our teams the flexibility to pivot when uh, they need to pivot. And so I, I feel like those are just kind of uh, the new paradigm that we find ourselves moving towards. Uh, and then the ability to, you know, adapt an emergency or non-emergency environment is something that we have the flexibility in, in the contracts and we have the, the flexibility in the infrastructure uh, to accommodate. 
and so we've we've drafted uh, that language, and that'll be in in all new contracts moving forward. But then that also leads into uh, some of the ways that we enable access to data and information. And so the chief data officer working within CIO G6 also drafted a data services requirements memo. So this is getting into uh, the way that we actually enable access to data of IT systems and how that data needs to be uh, visible, accessible, understandable, trusted, interoperable, secure, or VATIS, V-A-U-T-I-S, as we say. And starting to ensure that any new IT system has this adaptability and flexibility with infrastructure, with how they do the work within the contracts, uh, but also the way that they're exposing their data is uh, when we knew uh, need new data sources, we can tap into that data securely in real time uh, and not find ourselves constrained by the technical implementation uh, or the contract or the infrastructure uh, if we need that information uh, in this unpredictable world. What challenges did your employees face from the pandemic because of the technology environment? And you know, are there any good cases or, or um, examples of, of how you and your team help solve those? First and foremost, everyone being dispersed at home, our ability to collaborate was uh, limited. And so uh, across the United States Army, we had the ability to increase the number of telephone bridges. We had the ability to increase the number of VPN concentrators. And we had the ability to uh, increase the number of uh, government-furnished equipment that was uh, imaged and issued uh, out to the environment. And so first and foremost, giving people uh, access to uh, devices uh, as well as information and collaboration with each other was critical. We had the ability to accommodate that in real time and scale. But additionally, partnership, like I stated, with the CCPO to deliver the commercial virtual remote environment and enabling uh, unmanaged devices to be able to connect uh, securely and collaborate with uh, partners across the DoD was another critical enabler there. And so our ability to have both government-furnished as well as unmanaged devices, non-GFE, being able to communicate, but then also to get the the day-to-day work done uh, was absolutely critical. The response from our Army Enterprise Service Desk, NETCOM, and then our cyber just globally to be able to accommodate was really a, a key enabler there. When it came to uh, you know some of the other challenges, you know, government furnished equipment can only go so far. We saw a lot of changes in configuration to our post protocol services and management that we had in place. And so how we start to globally respond to securely open up these ports and protocols to be able to pass information in real time uh, were absolutely critical. Uh, and the teams were able to uh, crash on those challenges, identify the solutions, and then be able to implement those just simply in a matter of days. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard excerpts of an interview my colleague Jory Heckman had with Paul Puckett, the director of the Army Enterprise Cloud Management Office. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.